Welcome to episode 138 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Well, hey, brother. What's going on? Not much. Not much. Just celebrating the Lord's Day, enjoying a little bit of afternoon sunshine and some good weather. It's the first kind of like sunny day we've had since the ice melted, which is nice. Again, we just cannot avoid the reformed weather cast. You know, it's impossible. <laughs> it's such a huge part of your life. And like, literally, we went from winter to spring with no warmth. And now we had like a month of rain. And it literally is the first like sunny, nice day that we've had since winter. So I can't help but talk about it. Well, let's just get right after it. Do you have something that you want to affirm this week? I do. So we are on the cusp of Memorial Day, uh, which is a day in the United States, which uh, is used or is set aside to remember those who have served in the armed forces, specifically who have lost their lives. Um, also kind of attached to it ends up being people who have been wounded in combat or have made some other sort of um, significant sacrifice in order to uh, defend right. the citizenry of this country. And so I am affirming all of those who serve in the armed forces. So it's, um, you know, there are certainly questions that can be had about the propriety of the armed conflicts that we've been a part of uh, in terms of our military, uh, the way that our military is run, the way that our tax dollars are spent. All of that uh, certainly is a debatable and worthy discussion. But uh, nevertheless, there are those who have sacrificed significant things uh, in their life to be able to serve and to defend uh, the freedoms that we often take for granted. Um, I'm often reminded when I when I pray uh, that we are able to gather in relative safety. Um, you and I are able to do this show right. and talk very openly about the areas we live in and and not feel right. like we have to censor ourselves. Uh, and we, we are able to do that in large part because of the military uh, force that we have that protects our borders. So I'm affirming anyone who's served in the military. Specifically, uh, I'd like to call a shout out to Joshua Jackson, who is a chaplain in, I'm not sure which branch, but he's a chaplain in the military. Uh, Nathan Anderson, who is in the Air Force, uh, and lots of other people. Jake Swink, who's a listener of the show, who have uh, have been serving the military for quite some time. So thank you. Thank you. Seriously, thank you for your service. We appreciate all that our military uh, brothers and sisters do for us. Right on. And this is one of those things that, especially at this time of year, can seem cliche. But what a great affirmation, because the reality is that there are men and women, many of which we are close to, that sacrifice so much of who they are in defense of all the ideals of the kind of essential ethos of the United States. And that's something that's that's for real. So I, I, I too, like I feel like we it's a, it's really a shame that we need sometimes this kind of holiday to remind us that there is so much that's happening in our world that needs to be defended and approached. Yeah. And so I, I'm with you. I just really appreciate those who are willing to make that their life's endeavor. Yeah. I'm going to steal one uh, quick playbook out of Reform Pilgrims. And I want you, I want our listeners to consider this. Uh, Memorial Day is a day that is supposed to be somber. It's supposed to be a day of remembrance. 
Um, it's supposed to have the feel kind of of a funeral um, because that's what we're remembering. So I would I would challenge our listeners. Um, you know, it's okay to go to a barbecue or to spend some of your time that you have off work enjoying the extra time and celebrating the day with your friends. But keep in mind the somberness of the day, uh, particularly right. on venues like Facebook, where you have um, you're exposing your thoughts to people that you may not realize or or be intending to. There are a lot of people that Memorial Day is a difficult somber day for because they have lost um, yes. loved ones in the military. So please be mindful and be sensitive to that fact. As as you uh, particularly use social media. And that's, I think, true not only for those who have actually lost a loved one, but also for those who have just served and seen very hard things. So I, I want to give a shout out to Ben DeClaire, who's been on our show uh, before and who's a good friend of mine who served in the Army. And I know if you have somebody that is close to you, I would recommend you kind of reaching out and just encouraging them on this particular day, but also asking some questions about their service in particular. And for those that are willing to share, I think what you'll find is that they've just been, they've had to see some hard things, had to experience some very difficult yeah. things. And I think once we begin to understand what it is to give a life of service in this particular way, we're just going to have more appreciation for those who have really served in the armed forces. There's almost nothing that's lighthearted about this particular mission. And there's everything that is in it that gives us reason to celebrate our freedom, but that the freedom comes at a cost. And for us, it's mostly free in the sense that we do not have to deal with the really difficult struggles that involve enforcing our worldview, yeah. or at least defending our freedoms. So I think you're right that the tone should be one of somberness and just reflection as well, because we live in a blessed age and in a blessed place where you and I are able to record this conversation, not only to speak openly, but record it and put it out there on the internet without fear that we're going to be persecuted for the things that we say. Yeah. And that really comes at the cost of those who are willing to give their lives, both in the explicit sense, but also in the tacit sense that they have been in places where they've had to deal with and serve under very, in very difficult circumstances. Yeah. Yeah, I just realized that you and I are not so great at podcasting because we uh, just gave a bunch of challenges for tomorrow, and this show's not going to air until Wednesday <laughs> after Memorial Day. So anyone who's listening, just push this out like another 12 months or so until the next Memorial Day. Or, I mean, to your point, this is, I think, a call to, a call to action that says, like, in many ways, every time we are given to praise God for the place in which he's put us, we should also thank him that he's given us this environment and these people that serve us day in and day out by doing this thing. So in some respects, like, it's almost too bad because I know that there are many that serve in the military where they're happy to participate in the affairs of Memorial Day and that they often sometimes feel like, well, that is the only day. That yeah. really people remember that what they've been through is very difficult and that they continue throughout the rest of their lives to feel the impact of their service in very profound ways. So I think there's something special that Christians can do to affirm that type of service throughout the year. Yeah, I agree. So what are you affirming today? I really wish, and maybe this is, is really, we shouldn't do this, but I really wish that we would kind of maybe sometimes coordinate on our affirmations and denials <laughs> because it seems like, <laughs> once again, you always have like really deep thoughtful, reflective <laughs> affirmations and denials. And then it comes to me and people are like, oh yeah, let this fool say something ridiculous about, you know, that he affirms <laughs> or denies. So um, this is, I really wish I could think of something different at this point, but I'm in too deep. Just do it. Just I'm rock gonna it. 
I'm just going to let it happen. So this affirmation is particularly for the brothers, especially for the brothers. So I apologize, sisters, that isn't particularly uh, applicable to your situation. But I want to affirm bow ties, which does not in any way compare favorably to remembering those who have served us so well in the armed forces. But uh, I was just thinking recently... <laughs> this, is, this is just ridiculous. I love this I was, so much. Yeah, I was just thinking recently... I almost can't go on. I was just thinking recently, I'll try this again, how bow ties for dudes are just like super classy. So, and here's the thing. Like I was at a wedding yesterday, actually. And if you wear bow ties, which I, I've undertaken in the last several years to, to purchase some bow ties and to wear them out. And I have two convictions about this. First is that I'm really convinced that every dude can wear a bow tie. It's just a matter of like getting it, doing it and being confident with it. So every dude can wear a bow tie. The second thing is if you do wear bow ties, I'll promise you one thing. And that is that in every situation where you see other bow ties, you're going to be able to pick out right away which one of those bow ties are tie yourself bow ties and which are what I'm going to call the straight up fake or faux bow ties. The ones that are just like <laughs> made in such a way that you just kind of wrap, you know, like when you get a tux traditionally, like they're just banded bow ties. You wrap them around their neck. They're yeah. already pre-tied. They come in a form. So I'm referring two things. One, if you're a dude, Get yourself a bow tie because bow ties are crowd pleasers. Now, you wear the bow tie. I've seen you rock the self-tied bow I tie. Do. It looks fantastic. It's kind of like a manly skill to develop in and of itself. But would you agree with me that the, the tie yourself bow tie is a crowd pleaser? Yeah, absolutely. And, and there's one exception to the tie your own tie. And this goes for regular neckties as well. There's, there, well, two exceptions to the tie your own tie rule. You should always use a real tie that you tie yourself with the following exception. If you're in a wedding or in some other situation where it's important that things look uniform for the sake of pictures, that makes sense to get the like the pre-tied ones because then everything looks the same. You don't have somebody sure. that's all jacked up and crank, you know, like off to the side or like a giant knot or whatever. The second is there are certain professions that make sense to wear like a clip-on tie because if your tie gets stuck in something and it's tied around your neck, you might die. So like police officers, they use clip-on ties because if someone grabs their tie, it just right. pops off. So, but yeah, other than that, there is no excuse to not tie your own tie. There's not a lot of things that I'm like, be a man and like define it as a specific action. Be a man and tie your own tie. Just get a real tie, <laughs> tie your own tie. It's not that hard. Um, bow ties can be tricky, but um, but tie your own tie. And you know what? It is a crowd pleaser because people are like, oh, nice bow tie. And you're like, yeah, thanks. And they're like, is it real? And you're like, yeah, it's real. And they're like, oh, man, it's real. They feel people feel good about it. It makes you feel and look smarter. It does. It's got that like smart, casual vibe. So aside from just affirming the bow tie, if you're the kind of dude that either you've had some bow ties or you're looking to start brand spanking new, I'm going to also affirm a website for you. And that web suit, web, web suit, that website <laughs> is, yeah, definitely you're going to wear, want to wear a suit with many of these bow ties, but that website is absoluteties.com. So they have a wonderful collection of tie yourself bow ties. And they have like a bunch of novelty ties. Like if you are looking for that alligator tie yourself bow tie, done. This is the website for you. So absoluteties.com. Just get some bow ties. Start with the church experience. Start on the Lord's Day. Throw a bow tie on. Go to, go to YouTube. 
look up a video on how to tie a bow tie, you're going to find approximately 3.78 million different videos. But you will definitely be able to do it. This is one of those things that strangely is within every man's reach. But like you said, when you walk into a room with a bow tie that clearly looks like on point that you've tied, it's not that hard. People will see that and be like, man, this dude's got it going on. So you're going to love this. AbsoluteTies.com. Check yeah. it out. Yeah. And bow ties, you know, this was my experience. I don't know if you had the same experience. I got my first bow tie and I tried to tie it and I was like, this is never going to happen. I, I have no idea how this works. But after you actually get it the first time, the logic of how the knot works, like locks in your head and you're like, oh, I understand how this works now. And then it's super easy. Right. So you just have to struggle yeah, through I- it for a little while before you get it. I'm going to go out on a limb because this could be just me. And apparently already this whole affirmation has been out on a limb. But I think tying a bow tie easier than changing the windshield wipers on your motor vehicle. No, that's just you. (laughs) (laughs) Don't you have like the crazy, really weird windshield wipers though? Yeah, well, I think that could be it, but yeah. I, I think it's 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 really not that bad. So so anyway, enough about bow ties. So do you have some kind of like denial as well? I do, and it's actually related to my first my affirmation. Is, oh, do tell. Uh, and this, even though you're not going to hear about this till after uh, Memorial Day, it's applicable to other uh, secular holidays like the Fourth of July, which is also a big offender. So I am denying against churches that import like Memorial Day or Labor Day or Veterans Day or 4th of July or Christmas. Wait, what? Uh, Import (laughs) these holidays into the Lord's Day worship service. So it's one thing to to take a minute during announcements, especially if it's before the call to worship, um, but even not before that. It's one thing to take a brief second to say thank you to those in your congregation who've served in the armed forces or who have loved ones serving the armed forces, or to use the the fact that we're on Memorial Day weekend as an illustration in your sermon. That's one thing. That's fine. But there are lots of churches that make the Lord's Day on the Sunday before... um, Memorial Day or the Sunday 4th of July that make that into the the central theme of the Lord's Day worship. And right. maybe this is a newsflash for some people, but Memorial Day didn't exist when, when the Bible was written. So there is zero chances that Paul was talking about Memorial Day when he said, for freedom, Christ has set you free. Or when he talks about being a soldier for the Lord, like there is 0% chance that that he was talking about Memorial Day. So it really drives me nuts. You know, I, I've mentioned this big mega church. Um, I don't know if I've ever said the name, but I probably shouldn't. But I, I went to this big mega church in uh, Minneapolis when I was first coming to faith and then through college. And this is one of those churches that had a full like freedom celebration Sunday with like drama and like marching bands wow. and fake fireworks. And it was all about, you know, like we would stand up and salute the flag and do the pledge of allegiance. Like really now that I'm, you know, now that I'm more, more grounded in my reformed theology, like really egregious stuff. Um, but it's not actually that much of an anomaly. And, you know, I joke about like importing Christmas or Easter into the Lord's day, like that's of a whole different class. So that was legitimately right. a joke. Those are at least Christian concepts and themes that are present in the Bible. And it's a dispute about how and when we are, or if we are to celebrate them, but Memorial day, 4th of July, veterans day, you know, not, not in the Bible. So it should not be part of your Lord's day worship. Right on. I totally agree with that. I think probably that's, I think a far more common experience among evangelicals than we even realize, right? This idea of trying to somehow 
bring in the celebration of Memorial Day because it, it feels like well, we're not being American, but we're kind of uniting the Lord's Day to this distinctly Americanized celebration. Right. And this is to say, like you've just affirmed the, the I think the reasonable activity of being thankful and being filled with gratitude yep. for those who have served. And yet at the same time, there needs to be a distinction on the Lord's Day between what happens on the Lord's Day for the right. Lord. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. What about you? What are you denying? So I think I'm in the string of bringing up what I think are fairly controversial denials. And so again, <laughs> thanks for setting me up because here's one that's probably, well, probably definitely not as serious as the one you've just given, but I think maybe slightly controversial in its own way. And that is, I, there's no other way to say this. I'm just going to have to deny against cats. I, I'm just, and I don't, <laughs> yeah, right? Like, I don't even know if this is to say I'm not a cat person. That is true. But when I look at most cats, I mean, when I look at them in the eyes, what I sense that they're telling me is, I don't care if you live or die right now. And I think that whenever I've talked to people that are cat people, they often end up going in this direction of describing their cats and how awesome they are by saying something like, this cat is really like a dog, which leads me to believe you should just get a dog because all dogs are like dogs. Do you know what I'm saying? I do, uh, except <laughs> You're like that strangely silent. <laughs> even cats that are like dogs still go to the bathroom in a litter box and don't gorge themselves on all the food you leave out and will ration out their food. So even the dogs that are like, or even the cats that are like dogs are a little bit different than dogs in some significant ways. I like cats. Um, I like some cats, but you're right. Most cats don't care if you live or die as long as they get their food. And, you know, most cats would probably eat you pretty quick if you died in your home. But so would most dogs. So I don't know if there's much traction there. I, I like cats. I'm not a cat. I don't think I'm a cat person anymore. I, I was growing up because we didn't have dogs. But um, but I hear you. Like, cats can be tough pets. Yeah, I'm not saying that cats aren't maybe, like, adorable or cute in their own right. I think this is more a question of personality. And when that question of personality comes up, usually somebody will affirm whether the cat has a great personality because the personality resembles that of a dog personality. So I think that's more of, of where I'm going, like more yeah. of like the frame of mind. But it, it is strange. Like I, I just, there is not far from us, there is a, a couple that has a cat and the cat always sits in the window. And when I walk by, I really feel like the thing is threatening me with its eyes. That it's or it's boring. the case. Yeah, it's, it's boring into my soul. And I sense that it knows like my deepest, darkest secrets. So there's something about it, cats in general that just unnerve me. But I, again, like I don't doubt that like they can be cute. It just seems like they have a personality that's kind of like too independent for me or maybe, I don't yeah. know, like they're, they're interesting pets. But yeah, the difference is dogs want to be part of your pack. Like dogs are pack animals. They're social animals by nature. So they they want your approval. They want to have a relationship with you. They want to interact with you. Like that's just bred into them. That's part of their instincts. Cats are fiercely independent. So it really is the case that while most dogs are like trying to please you, most cats are tolerating the fact that you share space with them. Like that's the big difference. So, so some people really like to have that pet that's kind of independent. And, and it's it's almost like having more like having a roommate than it is like having... I don't know. I like a kid, like do <laughs> having a dog is not like having a kid. That's not what I'm saying. No. But like right. having a dog live with you is much more like having someone who's a part of your family sharing space with you where a cat is like just this other person that lives in your house. And like sometimes your goals and your, your needs align. And so that works and sometimes they don't. And then, yeah, 
I don't know. My favorite is if you go online and look up cat videos, uh, there's like like millions of cat videos of people who just like film their cat, like pushing stuff off of tables. They just, they do it. I don't know why, but like if you put a glass on the table and they want to be there, they're just going to like push the glass right off the table. And that's what makes them really unique, right? Is that I think yeah. I've seen some of those videos where like the cat is actually making eye contact with the person. Yeah. Well, oh, yeah, they know it. what it's they're like doing. Very slowly. Yeah. So th- there is, I respect the fact there's something brilliant about cats. And maybe that's my issue is like, they're too much, not like a pet and more like a roommate. Like I just had this hilarious kind of image in my head of like everybody, if they, who has cats referring to their cats as roommates and not as pets, that would be hilarious. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I like cats, but I would never want to have a cat instead of a dog. But I think in a situation where you can't have a dog, like in an apartment or something, they're, they're suitable semi-replacements, I guess. So wait, like if, so you grew up with cats, right? You, you said you had a couple cats yeah, or mostly one yeah. cat. So then like when you say that you like cats, but would prefer a dog, what is it that you like about cats that, is there anything that you like about cats that would allow, would want you to have a cat over a dog? I mean, you can get a it cat. just logistical? It, you can get a cat that I'm not going to say like thinks it's a dog or acts like a dog, but is affectionate. Like you can, you can foster that kind of like affectionate relationship with a cat. Like I had a cat that absolutely like loved me and would like curl up in bed and like snuggle on my, like next to me in bed or would like wake me up in the morning and want to play. So like, I know those, those sound like dog characteristics, but this cat did this in like a characteristically cat way. So like you can get that, but it's, it's really hard to get a cat like that. Like it's hard. You have to work really hard to foster that relationship with dogs. It's like the opposite. Like you have to work hard to get a dog not to be like that. Like you have to abuse the dog to get it not to be affectionate with you. Right. So it's just a very different temperament, very different. Um, if I had to choose between having dogs or cats, I would take dogs any, any time. But if you work at it, you can get that same kind of like reciprocal affection out of a cat as well. So I'm at the risk of extending this way longer than we should. I want to say one more thing and I'm going to try to re- to unite, <laughs> get ready for this. I'm going to, this is going to get crazy. I'm going to try to unite my, de- my denial from last week with the denial for this week. Is it possible that the affectionate cat personality is really the baby dedication of Baptists? <laughs> You really are trying to drive some controversy on that question, on that denial. And everybody who heard it was like, yeah, yeah, that's that's pretty much right. So, yeah, I, maybe, I guess if you're if what you're saying is just get a dog instead of trying to get a cat that's affectionate, like you were saying, just baptize the baby instead of pretending you're not. Right. Then maybe. But I don't know. Yeah, I can't even tell anymore if this has been a success for me or not. <laughs> We are we are 22 and a half minutes into this episode and we've done nothing but talk about Memorial Day and cats. Oh, this has been some great podcasting. Well, let's then that's probably a good call to like actually make a transition, (laughs) which is what this is. So as if you've been tracking with us, we've been talking about the atonement, this really long, great, protracted conversation that you and I have been having about different theories of the atonement. And I'm a little bit excited, maybe a little bit more than average excited to talk about uh, the theory that we're looking at today, if only because I think sometimes what happens is when we begin speaking about a theory of the atonement, and of course we're using words to do that, and the words carry specific meaning, we're trying to really narrow in, we're trying to get very precise with what we're describing. And sometimes what happens is in that precision, 
I come across then another perspective on the atonement and I think, oh yeah, that's right. Like that should also be inside of what we've been talking about so far. And for me, here's one of those examples. So today we want to talk a little bit about what we're calling like the, the healing or expiation theory of the atonement. And the reason why I'm excited about this and why I say that maybe perhaps there's something in this that we haven't really spoken about before, or at least explicitly spoken about before, is because one particular critique of the atonement models that we've looked at so far, those that, that I think theologians would consider were developed in the history of the Western Latin church, is the fact that they often portray the atonement as some kind of external, instrumental transaction between Jesus and God. And what I mean by that is traditional views of the atonement, I think sometimes it's argued, create this kind of dualism, the separation or division between the person and the work of Jesus. Yeah. And in many traditional views, atonement is external to the person of Jesus. He is merely an agent of atonement because of his humanity. I mean, that is, is his, his actual body. So it's merely instrumental. That is, his body is the means to an end. And so sometimes it's argued that traditional models of the atonement lack some kind of real like ontological essential or essence connection between Jesus and who we are. So in these traditional models, atonement is a work that Jesus does for humanity, not in humanity. And I'm sensitive to that. So this, I think looking at the healing or expiation theory gives us yet another way to look at that. And I wanted to discuss it with you in kind of three separate dimensions, because oftentimes this view is centered around the hypostatic union, which we talked about before, the unity of work and person. And then lastly, this assumption of the fallen flesh. So let's like start on, well, do you have any thoughts kind of like off the top about this particular theory, like where it kind of hits you or what you think to be kind of the essential or like centered themes of this particular model of the atonement? Yeah. So this, this model is actually very near and dear to my heart because as I've I think I've mentioned it sort of as a tangent in in some conversations. Most of my academic study in seminary was centered around uh, the atonement theology of Athanasius of Alexandria. Right. Uh, And so that was how I got drawn into sort of this more in-depth study of of Christology and uh, the hypostatic union. And then then that drew me into a more in-depth study of the sort of metaphysics of the Trinity. But it all started because I was studying predominantly this one this one work that you could read in an afternoon and it's called on the incarnation. And so this is kind of like the chief work that Athanasius is really well known for. He has a ton of other stuff that he wrote, but what's really interesting about this, and I depart from the field a little bit on this. He actually wrote this, I think before the break of the Arian controversy. So what you're getting is you're getting a a Christological reflection and an atonement reflection that is not distracted by sort of the crisis at hand of the Arian controversy. So you're getting kind of a, a more, in my opinion, you're getting a more sort of a more pure um, take on Athanasian Christology and particularly Athanasian atonement theory, because he he doesn't really talk about the atonement all that much in other other later works. Um, and my my hypothesis, if anybody cares, is basically there's no mention of Arius or the Arians or the Council of Nicaea anywhere in this work, which is absolutely unthinkable. Uh, after the Council of Nicaea in the area of Christology. It would be unthinkable right. for the chief opponent of the Arians to write an entire book fighting what amounts to be uh, Arian theology and not mention Arius. And Athanasius was very quick to just throw Arius under the bus, whether he deserved it or not. Most of the time he deserved it. There's some places where people get a little squirrely with Athanasius. But one thing that I found, yes, this healing, this healing theory 
this healing atonement or this therapeutic atonement model is certainly the emphasis in Athanasius uh, model. It's not the only thing, though, and I'm sure we'll get into that a little bit. But more or less, the idea is that um, you, you have to think about sort of platonic metaphysics, right? You have to think about right. the idea of this ideal form or this, this human nature that sort of exists above or behind all particular instances of human nature. And so this is written before the church had kind of uh, uh, sort of rarefied or distilled out the uniquely Christian metaphysic or the uniquely Christian ontology that we see coming after the Council of Nicaea and then especially after the Council of Constantinople. So Athanasius is writing from this sort of semi-Platonic understanding where there is really this, this concrete nature that exists behind all of the human natures. And that that single nature is what makes each of these individual instances of nature to be what it is. And so what happens in the fall is that Adam, who is a particular instance and sort of the fountainhead of all of the other particular instances, he corrupts his human nature. And that corruption right. kind of transfers backwards into the ideal form or into the sort of the the capital H human nature. So then after that happens, all of that all of the natures which come after that, which come more out of that singular nature than they do out of descending from Adam, all of those natures bear that same corruption that's been imported into the single human nature. So more or less what happens in the incarnation, according to this model, is that Christ takes on that concrete human nature, the singular humanity, the capital H human nature, and he heals that human nature such that now not only are any human natures that are are generated or come to be after that are healed, but it goes retroactively in time to heal all previous human natures as well, including right. Adam's. So there is this, we mentioned in the first episode, there's this universal, universal, um, scope or extent of the atonement that happens in a lot of these theories that honestly makes it hard to explain why anyone ends up in hell. Right? So a lot of people will read this work and they'll read it in abstract and they'll say, well, see, Athanasius was a was a universalist because the whole the entire human nature is healed. Christ is united to every particular human and therefore every particular human is restored and healed. They miss that there is a distinct penal element to this um, and right. they miss that he wrote other things. So in the other areas where he does talk about the atonement and other works, he touches on the he touches on the idea of sin and guilt. It's not like that's not in there, but because of the context he was writing in and particularly, I mean, if this is before the Arians, which I think it is, then it was written largely as a response to origin. So there was still a response going on, and it had to do with this metaphysical understanding of nature, where origin was saying, no, every single nature is, is reunited with God, including angels. And, and Athanasius is saying, no, 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 there's a, there's a healing element that happens, but he does weave right. in that penal element as well to sort of balance that out. And I think one of the things that's particularly interesting about what he says is, almost trying to understand, well, where does the atonement begin? And most of the times we speak of the atonement as beginning on the cross. And yet there's almost like this, all this pre-work that's happening, even besides the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, according to Athanasius. So what I find that I think is particularly helpful in influencing how we understand the atonement is this idea that we've, you know, that's become popularized. It seems really simple, just that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man in one right. person. And if I may take like a, would you allow me like a, just a brief excursus on this to talk about something that is like a pet peeve of mine? Is you may cool? proceed. Thank you very much. I appreciate the floor. So 
Here's one of those things is I, I prefer to say like truly God and truly man, if only because like we get into this whole debate about like a hundred percent and a hundred percent and something that drives me absolutely insane and up the wall is when we get into the whole conversation, either like casually or otherwise, where somebody says like, Oh, I gave like 110%. Like yeah. you cannot give more <laughs> than is everything that is like impossible in our finite world. So maybe we want to try to speak about that in terms of like the supernatural, but it doesn't make any sense. So to say truly God and truly man is I think far better, but this idea of the union of divine and human natures in one person of Jesus Christ it, as this like atoning union where like the atonement means reconciliation. So that is the incarnation itself is redemptive. And so in his one incarnate person, Jesus Christ is the reconciliation of God and fallen humanity, which, which I think is what you're saying. So like we do have this absolute unity of work in person and that maybe is, I think often impounded in some of the other views that we've been talking about with respect to the atonement. But this is like a very explicitly unitary doctrine of atonement. Like the work of Jesus Christ is never separated from the person of Jesus Christ. So how Jesus Christ provides atoning reconciliation is a direct function of who he is right. as the incarnate savior, being yeah, at once key. truly God and truly man. Yeah, it's and what I like about this particular theory is it's, it's coming in like hard, like straight out of the gate with that. And I think there's something to be said there because oftentimes we get caught up in the work without respect to the who. I mean, is that fair? Yeah, I think one of the, so this is not a universal thing. So don't don't try to apply this to every situation. But generally in the West, our reflections about atonement come after logically our reflections about uh, the incarnation and the nature of the hypostatic yes. union. Right. So we build our we build our system and and we start with usually with the doctrine of scripture and then the doctrine of God. And then we talk about the fall sometimes. Then we get into Christology and then our talk about the atonement flows out of the Christology. I mean, that's the way that the Westminster sets it up is is we talk about the, the mediator and then we talk about what the mediator did. Um, the atonement theology, though, of the East, particularly of Athanasius here, atonement actually precedes Christology. So, so they're, they're, they're looking at what is it that the Bible says Christ did? And then they talk about, all right, now what does Christ have to be like in order for him to accomplish that? Right and on. so, so they're seeing, they're seeing like language of, of healing and restoration and renovation in scripture. Um, they're seeing language about partaking of the divine nature, right? Peter talks about that. Um, and then there's, they're saying, all right, now what does Christ have to be like in order to heal the human nature and to allow us to partake of the divine nature? Well, he has to be fully God and fully man. So, so he, the, we have to sort of, anytime you're talking about Eastern theology. So, um, when I hear someone say that the Eastern Orthodox Christians or the early church, the early Eastern church fathers denied, deny sola fide or they deny, um, they deny imputation or something like that. I immediately know that most likely that person has never actually studied Eastern Orthodoxy because the Eastern Orthodox don't think in those categories. So to say they deny it would be like saying, I deny snuffle floppers. Like it's, it's a meaningless <laughs> sentence, right? Because right. there's no real connection in their mind because for most modern Eastern Orthodox thinkers and for many patristic Eastern thinkers, um, the, the, the issue in the atonement is more about 
restoration of nature, the, the, the restoration of nature and then participation in the divine energies of God. We're not going to get into the essence energies distinction too much, but they're thinking in different categories. So we really have to do a lot of work to sort of flip our perspective around and to sort of understand on their own terms what they're getting at in order to really get how they're talking and how they're thinking. And there, I think there's something like with what you're saying there, that's like inherently very beautiful that absolutely comports with the scriptures in this idea that atoning reconciliation takes place within, not like external to the incarnate constitution of Jesus Christ. Right. So we have Jesus Christ as the gospel. He is the gospel because he embodies internally reconciliation between God and humanity. So there is a component of that, which is re- represented in what he does but it is representing what he does because of who he also is. Exactly. And that has so much to do with this assumption of fallen flesh, which gives us hope that it's not just hope for tomorrow and strength for today, as the hymn says, but the idea that there is hope for today because right. he has already taken care of what has already been completely lost and now reconstituted, reconstituted in our humanity. So what's interesting to me is like this healing or this expiation theory of the atonement derives from the doctrine of incarnational redemption or atoning reconciliation. So again, I think it's this patristic doctrine, like you've already elaborated, that the eternal word of God assumed fallen, sinful, Adamic flesh in the incarnation. And at least for me, like growing up in kind of a semi-evangelical sense, that wasn't always often influenced. It kind of like this idea that even before we get to the cross, that Jesus is doing something. There is a work that's happening uh, by its very nature in the atonement that takes place because he is made in our likeness. And I think one of perhaps like the, the greater or most, I think, be- let me say best articulated uh, proponents of this particular theory is, is T.F. Torrance, which yeah. by the way, I've realized if you just want to be considered a decent theologian, you should just go with your like initials because that's clearly. Oh yeah, for sure. You, yeah, that's the way. 100%. You gain respect, um, which, by the way, I'm actually not sure that we've ever talked about this, but do I know your middle name? I feel like I should. I don't know. I mean, you can tell me if you know my middle name. I don't, I don't know um, if you know my middle name. It's so, my dad's name, but not Larry, which is probably the name you know him by. That is the name that I would know him by. Yeah. Uh, is, is Larry like an actual like a, an actual nickname or is that like yeah, it's a Yeah, it's a shortened version kind of. My middle name is Lorenzo. Oh, yes, I did know that. Yeah. By the way, that's a sweet name. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I like that is it. A sweet, I mean, it works for me. That is sweet. So you would be AL, which is pretty right. sweet. Yeah, or TL. Yeah. Or TL, depending on, yeah. Yeah, yeah I mean, J, J.D. Schwamm sounds, although that sort of sounds like a financial <laughs> advisor name. You could just do that. Yes, it's a dust. It's it's maybe a little oh. too close to JD Hall, which is probably not a good Ooh. a good affiliation for you to to put yeah. on there. That yeah. is a little rough. But yeah. so I'm so good at getting us off track. Like that should be my my spiritual gift for our podcast. But <laughs> so so TF Torrance uh, says this about this particular model of the atonement. He writes, "The incarnation is to be understood as the coming of God to take upon himself our fallen human nature." our actual human existence laden with sin and guilt, our humanity diseased in mind and soul, and it's estrangement or alienation from the creator. So that that might be a little bit more extreme than I would take it, but I, I certainly get his point, which is that 
there's something inherently special about undertaking this kind of ontological centric view of the atonement, whereby we're emphasizing Jesus is like us. And in that work of becoming like us, even before he gets to the cross, even before he gives of his life to the mission of which God has intended for him in the giving of the son, there is something special that already is the work of atonement. And I love that. And I think yeah. there's something like deeply biblical and inherently spiritual about that. Yeah. So, and so this is a good, uh, a good segue to talk about what's wrong with this model or where this model can go a little crazy. So yes, um, let's do it. Actually, could you read that TF Torrance quote again? Yeah. So here's what he says. The incarnation is to be understood as the coming of God to take upon himself our fallen nature or fallen human nature our actual human existence laden with sin and guilt, our humanity diseased in mind and soul in its estrangement or alienation from our creator. Yeah. So TF Torrance is a perfect example of what happens when a modern thinker sort of reverts back to this patristic way of thinking. So, mm. so we hear it with sort of Western reformed ears and we hear him talking about taking on our actual existence. Um, but for Torrance, as he's reflecting on the patristic testimony for what the scriptures mean, it's not that Jesus becomes one of us. Jesus actually becomes us. So, yes. so he, he doesn't just take on a nature like ours. A, a genuinely human nature like ours. He takes on my human nature and your human nature. And so Torrance is actually pushing back into that platonic way of talking and thinking where there is this nature out there somewhere, this human nature that we all participate in concretely, like not, not in some sort of linguistic parallel or some sort of like hypothetical sense, but concretely participate in this actual nature. And so Christ, Christ participating in that nature that's what restores us. That's what heals us. Now, Torrance, Torrance, um, uh, I'll have to try to dig it up. Christ the Center did a brilliant episode looking at Torrance and sort of the issues on this. So Torrance um, is a brilliant patristic scholar, and he um, he is a, a brilliant synthesis of reform thinking um, and or I should say sort of like post-Bardian reformed thinking and patristic sure. thinking. He's not right. a reliable commentator in terms of Orthodox Reformed theology, but nevertheless, he's worth studying because he does give us a glimpse into this sort of patristic way of talking and thinking. So where this goes off the rails, though, is if you don't have it, just like all of these other atonement models that we've talked about, if you don't have it balanced with the actual concrete saving intention and action of God in some sort of substitutionary penal uh, arrangement, you end up with a universalism, right? There's right. nothing that stops Torrance from flying off into a universalist model where all humans are restored because of God's gracious act in Christ, right? That's where that's where Origen went. That's where Bart ends up. That's where Torrance ends up. That's where Anselm, uh, or that's where um, Abelard ends up. That's where uh, this new covenant theology, this new covenant atonement theology we talked about last time ends up. Unless you have a genuine penal substitution model or maybe a penal satisfaction model, uh, like a satisfaction atonement model like Anselm, although he sort of sets, goes off into the same sort of universalist bent as well. Unless you have that penal substitution element, you, you fly off into this universalist. And this is why it drives me nuts when people, um, people pull quotes out of Athanasius to try to support that he was a universalist because he was very careful and explicit in tying his model to a concrete 
penal model as well. Now, it's not penal substitution the way we think about it. It's not um, right. it's not necessarily God's wrath being justified, but it it is um, it is a penal model and it does involve substitution. So I want to read I'm going to read a, a fairly lengthy section of this. Um, fair warning for anyone who has sensitivities in reference to the second commandment and images of Christ. It's just about impossible to get a copy of this book that doesn't have a picture of Jesus on the front. So fair warning. Um, I wish it wasn't so. Maybe someday when I'm a publisher, I'll publish a copy of this that doesn't have that. But um, be warned, if you look it up on Amazon, you're going to run into that. So this is um, this is the popular patristics edition. It is the uh, 44A volume, which has Greek and English, so the page numbering is a little different. This is on page 63, and it's section 6. He says, For these reasons, then, with death holding greater sway and corruption, remaining fast against human beings, right? There's the corruption, the the the, the sickness, the death. Um, the therapeutic model tends to tends to personalize or personify death as the right. force that holds us captives, right? So corruption remaining fast against human beings, the race of humans was perishing and the human being made rational and in the image was disappearing. See how he talks about the human being. He's not talking about an individual human being. He's talking about that the human nature as a whole was under the right. sway and corruption of death. And the work of uh, work made by God was being obliterated. For as I said earlier, by the law, death thereafter prevailed against us, and it was impossible to escape the law, since this had been established by God on account of the transgressions. And what happened was both truly absurd and improper. It was absurd on one hand that having spoken, God should prove to be lying, that is, having legislated that human beings would die by death if he were to transgress the commandment, yet after the transgression, he were not to die, but rather this sentence dissolved. So th that is not that is not corruption language. That's legal penalty language, right? It's about the legislation, right. the law that God established, God having to fulfill his justice by, by fulfilling the punishment he ordained. Um, for God would not be true if after saying that he would die, the human being did not die. On the other hand, it was improper that what had once been made rational and partakers of his word should perish and once again return to non-being through corruption. It was not worthy of the goodness of God that those created by him should be corrupted through the deceit wrought by the devil upon human beings. And it was supremely improper that the workmanship of God and human beings should disappear either through their own negligence or through the deceit of demons. Therefore, since the rational creatures were being corrupted and such works were perishing, what should God being good do? Permit the corruption prevailing against them and death to seize them. Notice there, prevailing corruption and death. Those are two distinct things that are happening. It was proper not to have come into being rather than to have come into being to be neglected and destroyed. The weakness rather than the goodness of God is made known by neglect. If after creating, he abandoned his own work to be corrupted rather than if he had not created the human beings in the beginning. Uh, I'm going to flip ahead a little bit here. Um, this is verse uh, section seven, which is on the, uh, the top of page 65. But just as this had to be so, and he's talking about the, the plan of salvation that God is, is bringing about, just as this had to be so, also, on the other hand, the consistency of God lies against it, so that God should appear true in his legislation concerning death. For it was absurd that God, the father of truth, should appear to be a liar for our profit and preservation. What then had to happen in this case, or what could God do? Demand repentance from human beings for their transgression? One might say this is worthy of God, claiming that just as they were set toward corruption by transgression, so by repentance they might again be set towards incorruptibility. So what he's saying here is that 
repentance is sufficient or hypothetically would be sufficient to reverse the corruption of the human nature. So God right. could have accepted bare repentance. Now, this is something the reform would disagree on, but God could have accepted bare repentance and allowed that to reverse the corruption. That would have been enough for him to say, all right, now I'm going to heal the human nature. But this is where I say there's this distinct second mode of, of atonement that needs to be accounted for. But repentance would neither have preserved the consistency of God, for he again would not have remained true if human beings were not held fast by death. Nor does repentance recall human beings from what is natural, but merely halts sin. If then there were only offense and not the corruption of consequence, repentance would have been fine. But if once the transgression had been taken off, humans were now held fast in natural corruption and been deprived of the grace of being in the image of God, what else needed to happen? Or who was needed for such grace and recalling except God, except the God word who in the beginning made the universe from non-being? For his, it was once more both to bring corruptible to incorruptibility and to save the superlative consistency of the father. Being the word of the father above all, he alone consequently was both able to recreate the universe and worthy to suffer on behalf of all and to intercede for all before the father. So right on. here is what I think is going on. In Athanasius, you have the beginnings of covenant theology. Right. So you have this idea that there is a union that with Christ that happens with all humanity. Right. There's a there's a universal solidarity that happens with all humanity that allows for the resurrection, allows for the correction and the, the the restoration of the human nature of individual human natures to incorruptibility. Right. But there's also this element in Athanasius that recognizes that just the removal of that incorruptibility. Right. Is not sufficient to take away the debt of penalty that humans owe for violating the law of God. And so Eastern Orthodox commentators and Roman Catholic commentators who want to use Athanasius to prove that Protestantism is wrong, ignore that second half and they collapse it into the first. Sometimes Western thinkers who want to try to fight against Eastern Orthodoxy ignore that first part and they make it all about the penalty. But in reality, there's both happening. And this maps over to reformed understandings of double imputation almost perfectly, is that there's this negative reality, there's this corruption and penalty that has to happen in order for us to, uh, has to be resolved in order for us to be saved. But even if we resolve that, there still needs to be a positive merit on our behalf Right. That that needs to be entered into our account. And Athanasius resolves this by there's this Athanasian dictum that feels really weird to say for Western thinkers, for, for Protestant thinkers, especially. He says that the son of man or the son of God became man, that man might become God's or might become God. Right. And he's not saying that we somehow cross the creature creator distinction, but he's saying that what what Christ was by nature he becomes man and enters into union with us in order that we might become by grace what he was by nature. So that's that's the the, the reformed understanding of adoption right there. We we are given a right to all of the privileges and counted among the number of the sons of God because of what Jesus Christ did for us in healing our corruption, right? Sanctification and in removing our guilt justification. So so we have to read carefully and that's what drives me nuts about people who read Athanasius in defective ways is they're really, really keen to pull quotes out of here and not read the whole thing. But if you read the whole book and you just read it 
using a standard historical hermeneutic. What do the words on the page mean? What is the context? You get right. almost exactly the same thing as what Calvin comes to after he goes back to not only the Bible, but also to the patristic sources. So we have to maintain this penalty element in our doctrine of the atonement, even though we should and must include some of these other models, we have to include the penal, the penal aspect, or we fly off into these weird universalist strains. Right. And at the same time, I think one of the beautiful things about undertaking or trying to consider this particular model is that it challenges us also to consider and incorporate the fact that there is a sense, a sense in which we need to really import this idea that there is a real healing that comes through the atonement by way of Jesus becoming like us. And that right. also is important. So this idea that the incarnation is no mere static union of God and human flesh, but it's this idea that it's, it's dynamic healing, it's cleansing, it's reconciling, it's satisfying and sanctifying yeah. the union of God and humanity. And I, I like what you're saying there is like, we need to understand there is a penal element, but for those of us who are prone to just consider first and foremost, and maybe only the penal element, what happens is we forsake everything else. And then we become focused on what is just instrumental and external. Right. And so the incarnation itself, as Athanasius teaches us, I think, is redemptive. The union of divine and human natures in Jesus is atoning reconciliation. Right. And atonement is not something that Jesus just does. That's true. But it also, like, it, Jesus is the atonement. I mean, right. he, he is God and fallen Adamic nature, flesh joined together in this reconciling union. And essentially from inside the skin of Adam... And throughout the whole course of his obedient life, because Jesus lived under the law, Jesus bent the rebellious human will back to the Father, healed and cleansed all of our corrupt and diseased flesh, and reconciled us to the Father. And that's just as much what he has done as it is who he is. And yeah. I'm prone to forget the former and focus on the latter. So I love that this theory kind of, in some ways, again, though by itself, in complete isolation, it's going to have its absolute shortcomings. I think it's good because for many of us, it focuses back onto who Jesus is and how he's assumed our nature. Yeah. Yeah. And one thing, you know, I, I've been kind of baking this theological idea for a couple of years and I haven't quite been able to get the, the recipe quite right. But there's something to the fact that the the way that the persons operate in the economy of redemption, the, the, the particular works that terminate on particular persons, right? We understand that the external works of the Trinity are not divisible, but nevertheless, the right. scripture terminates certain works on certain persons. That tells us something analogically about the, the ad intra relations of the Trinity. And so here, here's the example, is that the Holy Spirit in the Trinity is the bond of love between the father and the son right now. Right. Now we've talked about how that, that is somewhat challenging language. We're not even hundred percent sure what it might mean. It tends to depersonalize the, the second person, the Trinity. Does that mean that the spirit is not loved by the father and the son? You know, there's all these questions, but, but the basic idea that the, the Holy spirit is the unity of the father and the son personalized, right? That's, that's what we talk right. about when we talk about procession. Exactly. The, the spirit is the unity of the son and the father, which is so perfect that it's actually a distinct hypostatic relation of the Trinity. The, the spirit also unites us as the bond of love to the father and the son. And so the spirit's role in the Trinity, the spirit's uh, relation in the Trinity flows out into creation as 
as fitting in the role that he plays in the economy of redemption. And so I got that and I was like, okay, that works. And then I got the, the father, like, okay, so the father is the father, you know, the, the person's proceed from the father, the processions. Um, and so we are adopted by grace to the father. Like that's a pretty straight shot. I struggled for a long time now with how does that apply to the son? And in reality, the hypostatic union itself is a microcosm of what God is doing in Christ for the elect, yes. right? So, right. so Christ unites his human nature to his divine nature. He unites humanity to divinity. And in that union, he elevates humanity to a place that it could not have been on its own before. Right, right now, now there are some people in the reformed world that are going to balk at that a little bit. That's a totally different conversation, but the union of the son and the, the hypostatic union with the nature, that union mirrors what Christ does for us in that we are now united to the divine through the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And so this, this model, this therapeutic model lands that better than any other. And that's, that's why I think it's important to understand and study the patristics because you get stuff like that out of the patristic theories, the patristic uh, reflection on the scripture, because we don't talk about the eternal, the eternal processions. We don't talk about eternal generation. We don't talk about eternal procession of the spirit. We do a little bit now in the context of the EFS controversy, but, but by and large, most Christians don't reflect on that. And there is a wealth of theological beauty and edification that comes out of that. When I can look at the incarnation and and truly say that I am what Christ was by nature, I am that by grace. My my adoption as a legal son of God by grace is no less real than the natural sonship that the son had in eternity past. It's of a different nature. It's not infinite. It's not eternal. So it's of a different quant. It's a different qualitative distinction, but nevertheless, it's still real and it still reflects and is reflected by that eternal union between the father and the son. And that's where I think the depth of the reformed tradition comes in, in focusing on union with Christ, because it's through our union with Christ that we get all of the other benefits of salvation, not just justification, adoption, sanctification, and the several benefits, which either accompany or flow from them. But we get God, we get the Holy spirit, we get the father Yes, and we get the son in a particular way. Our union with the son is of a different kind than our union with the spirit and the father in that we're united with the son because of solidarity, but we're also united to him in his divinity, likewise with the father and the son. So this is, this is top shelf, uh, Trinitarian atonement theology, but it's really important that we land it because this is where the reformed tradition is strong as opposed to something like the Lutheran tradition or like the Arminian tradition, which doesn't land this. I mean, the Lutherans hold to union with Christ, but because justification is the fountainhead of all, all of their ordo salutis, the union with Christ is actually a benefit that they get in light of justification, not the other way around. So, so they separate Christ's benefits from his person in a way that the reformed tradition refuses to do. I think that is a great final word on the healing or expiation or therapeutic view, uh, theory of the atonement that is right on spot on. So we have maybe just a couple moments real quick. Let's round out this particular discussion with a little bit of spiritual conferencing, which is our time to really speak about just briefly what God has been teaching us personally, what he's been working on in our own lives. So let me begin with something really quick. And that is, I've been just going back recently to Romans 1, which is just so much a centerpiece of my life in a processing theology. And I've gone back there recently because 
just like you, I've probably heard so many things just even recently because like almost no matter what you listen to, you fall into back this uh, podcasts, reading articles, looking at papers. It seems particularly when we talk about human psychology, so many secular thinkers want to emphasize what kind of amazing progress has been made in humankind by way of evolution. And yet at the same time, we cannot relinquish these seemingly strong chains of some kind of like basic nature. So just a quick example would be, I was listening to a podcast recently about how we think about money and this never ceases to amaze me, but they're talking about how like in the end, the human mind just has like these base kind of distinctive understanding of money or fear or greed that comes from the fact that we were like weird hunter gatherers and that we haven't through evolution been able to get rid of these chains that, that bind us to thinking in this like really kind of like basic and instinctual way. And what I just don't understand about that is like, if you are truly evolving, if evolution has been successful, then at some point, all those things become absolutely outmooted because they're no longer needed. And yet they go back to them because they cannot explain how people seem to have these cognitive biases that make them behave in ways that are just against this kind of evolutionary framework. And so I just realized that, of course, everything just fits into the realm of Romans 1, as if like God knew what he was talking about when this was penned through the Apostle Paul by saying, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. So in other words, like all of this is really just sin, right? It's just sin. It's just just this, this base instinct is really the flesh coming to bear in all of its its glory of selfishness. It's not the sense that we were once this kind of person and we grew up or evolved or tried to evolve from some, this kind of like debased mind, but it is the fact that we just live and continue to want to live in, in sin. So I don't know if you like can hear that kind of stuff, but all the time, I really can't tell you how often I hear people speak about how sophisticated we've become as a race. And yet at the same time, surprisingly, They're talking about millions, literally millions of years of evolution. And yet somehow at the end of the day, we cannot come away from some kind of like base instinct, which to me seems completely counterintuitive. And I want to say, listen, what you're describing is just sinfulness. That's all it is. Yeah. And and the Bible speaks to this in such a way that's not just eloquent and beautiful in the sense that it describes it so completely, but it comports with our actual reality that you just don't want to even admit that. And that in itself is some derivative form of God giving you over to the fact that you were sinful. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that's right on. You know, it's funny because having a dog, you learn all these weird things they do. (laughs) Like they, they have all these weird behaviors and you want to figure out why they do it. Like why, why does my dog, when she jumps up on the bed and gets ready to lay down, why does she spin in circles a bunch of times? Right. So you look that up on Google and they're like, well, dogs spin in circles because, uh, in, in the past it would have helped to stamp out bugs, uh, from outside, uh, of their, their den. It would have chased the bugs away from when they laid out. And I'm sitting there going, what? Like, so, so <laughs> when evolution <laughs> is postulated as though it were God, right? As the supreme explanation for everything, then everything has to be explained by evolution, right down to the fact that my dog spins in circles when she wants to lay down. That has to be explained by some evolutionary accretion way back in history, that dogs that spun in circles 
uh, before they laid down had a higher survivability than dogs that didn't because of bugs and disease, blah, blah, blah. Right. And and so it is like it's just it's just that thing. Everybody recognizes that there's a supreme explanation, that there's a unifying explanation for all things and that all right. things have a have an ultimate first cause. And so in order to avoid worshiping the creator and giving thanks, they are hardened against that. And so they come up with these other th- these other ideas. It, it, you're spot on. It's almost crazy, right? I mean, in yeah. the sense that once God has saved you, once the Holy Spirit has really enlightened your mind to understand the word of God, the full counsel that's represented in the scriptures, I think we see this stuff and we're like, man, this just makes complete sense. There, yeah. There's no gaps here. And yet I can't tell you how many, I think, who thinkers who think that they are elucidating something absolutely profound say, well, really, we've evolved to such and such a state that's really entirely profound. And yet at the same time, we just cling to this stuff that represents the fact that we were, yeah. you know, basically these really strange, almost animalistic hunter gatherers. And we, we just can't get beyond that. Like we're, we're super sophisticated. We've created, for instance, like amazing financial markets, amazing ways to interact with each other, amazing ways to communicate. And yet at the end of the day, we're no better off than we were like 2 million years ago. I just don't buy that. I can't yeah. buy that. And I, I think their own theory doesn't support that. The only thing that supports that is Romans one. So yeah. that, that's what I've been thinking a lot about recently. Yeah. Uh, how about wrong. you? Is it, is there something that you've been thinking about that God has been teaching you? Yeah. I mean, uh, I sometimes struggle with these, um, these spiritual conferencing sections because I feel like at least the way that God's been working in my life lately is, is like long-term small changes over time. So it's, sure. it's, it's kind of like I want to come back every week and say the same thing because like, yeah, God's teaching me that I need to love the scriptures more. Like that's what it is this week. God's teaching me that I need <laughs> to love the scriptures more. And it's hard because I feel like God is rooting up sort of like the basics and not, not that like I haven't loved the scripture in the past, but rooting up the basics about what that actually means and calling me to go deeper into that. So uh, I was reading uh, Peter, Ma- Peter Van Maastricht. Uh, I read a little bit of him previously and uh, I'm in this section on the Holy Scripture, and, and this is what he writes. And this just floored me because, you know, we've talked about how, like, sometimes you're sitting in the sermon and you're checking your watch, right? You're, you're kind of right. like, man, I got to get out of here. Um, and so this is what he says. These are the the three effects that we should see um, from growing and fostering a love of Scripture, which he says is a, one of the marks of a true Christian is a, a growing love of the Scriptures. He says, our love of the word should be such that it, one, propels us to gratitude towards God on account of the abundant supply of his word that he has conferred to us, a gratitude in which we recognize from our heart the mercy of our benefactor and the excellence of his benefits. We praise both with our mouth and we repay him with our works, that is, with faith and observance of things revealed in the word. Second, such a love urges us to study the divine word, which consists in its religious readings, hearings, meditations, and observances, which we retreat of these individually in what follows. And this is the one that really floored me and kind of ties into that idea of checking your watch in the sermon. Then it kindles in us a love and honor and support for those who deliver and explain the word of God to us. So hmm. what, what he's saying here is our love of scripture should foster and cause a love for our pastors because our pastors deliver the word to us. Just like a child loves, they love their mother in part 
because their mother provides sustenance and food for them and they crave and desire right. and need food. That's part of the bond that a mother has. That's that's part of why God designed mothers to breastfeed, because it, it creates a bond and a dependence and a love that otherwise may not have been created. Right. We should have a similar kind of bond and a similar kind of affection and analogical affection for our pastors and anyone else who delivers the word of God to us. Right. I still once in a while get choked up when I hear R.C. Sproul's voice come on the radio on my podcast. Like I miss him. I miss his voice. I've never met the man. I've never had a direct interaction with him, but I still get choked up once in a while when I hear that gravelly voice say something funny while explaining theology. Like there's just this mm. part of me that says, I love this man who brought me so much of the word and helped me so much that it's the same reason. Like I get angry when people misrepresent Michael Horton because I have this such a right. strong respect and affection for Michael Horton because how much his study of scripture and his delivery of the word to me through his theological writings has meant to me. Um, I get mad when people misrepresent what Athanasius is saying because he's been so influential in my life in understanding the incarnation and understanding salvation. So I, I just feel like in a lot of our, a lot of our modern context, um, just like we separate Christ from his benefits, we separate the word from those that God has given to us as a gift to bring it to us. Right. God has given to right. the church the offices of uh, pastor teacher, among other things. But he's given those to us for our benefit and for our good as a gift. And a lot of times I think that we just don't we don't respect and honor that gift. And ultimately, just like you're saying, <clears throat> when you're talking about Romans one, right, we refuse to give thanks and we suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Right. Christians right. do that, too, sometimes. So I've just been really impressed by that in the last the last week or so. You know, I want to just say like how much I appreciate that perspective in, in closing, like that this idea that sometimes I think when we think of this idea of like sharing what the Lord has been teaching us or kind of coming together and explaining what transformation has happened in our lives in a particular like short period of time, like a week or several days, there is this sense where we need to come up with something really large as if to prove that God is working on us. How, but however, I think most of the time, and, and Owen, I think, and many others w speak about this, it, it, what you just said, is that we really need to thank God that he works on us on the margins, that there's something cumulative in, in the effect of sitting under good preaching, of continuing daily to be yeah. in the scriptures, and having a relationship with God that is vetted, tested, and affirmed in a prayer closet that is strong, regular, and immediate. Yeah. And so I just affirm that, like this idea that we don't need to come up with something like grand, grandiose, or even large, but just to say that God continues to teach me this. That that is something that is absolutely beautiful and perhaps even more meaningful because as if the the hammer on the anvil just continues to fall daily and regularly and frequently without any kind of interruption, perhaps that is the best way to express and to vet that God is doing something in our lives. So yeah. I just want to encourage others and also you that like, I just appreciate that testimony that it doesn't have to be some like really big life shattering, alterating, you know, acknowledgement or realization, but just that God continues to do this in my life and I see it happening in small degrees yeah. and he will not relinquish it until he has taught me the full lesson. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good word to end on. So, um, we will <laughs> <laughs> professional podcasters folks. So, um, I want to do one quick sort of call to action or call to arms for the week. So this may be too late. 
I hope it's not, but it might be. Um, there is a meme page. Have you seen some of these meme pages on Facebook or like, I suppose you're not on Facebook much. So there's this sort of this new proliferation of meme pages that have these really kind of bizarre names. And I'm not sure where the naming convention comes from, but there's one that's called seven years of prosperous memes from Pharaoh's dreams. (laughs) And I saw this. (laughs) So, so the meme pages have sort of their own sort of like society that functions behind the scenes. They have their own sort of rules. There's like meme wars. There's all sorts of stuff. I don't really know how that works. But this summer, a lot of them are running these tournament brackets and uh, seven years of prosperous memes from Pharaoh's dreams is running a podcast tournament bracket. So we're already about halfway into it. Um, I actually think I'm hoping if, if Providence is in our favor on this one, Providence is always in our favor. That was moderately blasphemous. If God so wills it, (laughs) this episode will come out around the same time that our turn to be voted for is. So I hate that this is the way it is. So there are a lot of uh, reform podcasters, Society of Reform Podcaster Network shows in the um, tournament. Unfortunately, most of them are are like up against monstrous giant podcasts that they have no chance of winning. Like Reform Pilgrims, which just crossed episode 15, got paired up against White Horse Inn. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> right. So so there's not a lot of hope on that one. They, they lost pretty bad. Um, so you are not David. Yeah, you're not David. Um, so but <laughs> there is one bracket in which the Society of Reform podcasters is guaranteed to go through. And it's because it's got two of us in the same bracket. And it's it's Boom. Reform Brotherhood versus regular Reform guys. So I want everyone to make sure that they go and vote for one of those shows on the day that it comes up. We'll try to we'll try to put something out in the feed to announce that it's voting time. But you should go and follow Seven Years of Prosperous Memes from Pharaoh's Dreams on Facebook and watch for when it comes up. And I love the reformed uh, regular reform guys over there, but I really hope that we wipe the floor with them <laughs> because I think, and maybe I'm wrong, I think that the rest of the bracket will be pretty easy for us to dispatch. I think we've got some of the best listeners. We've got a good fan crowd. They're active on Twitter. They're active on Facebook. So go to that page, share it around, make sure that you vote for us. Um, And then five for fruits also in our bracket. Uh, They're up against Presby cast, which most of those listeners are like cranky Presbyterians who aren't on the internet. So we probably won't have much (laughs) challenge there, Uh, but check it out. It's going to be awesome. And if we can get through our bracket, then my prediction is we will be up against James White on the dividing line for the oh, quarterfinals wow. for our bracket. So uh, we'll be in the final four. We'll be up against James White. We're going to get destroyed by the dividing line, but that is an honor to get destroyed by the dividing line. So check it out. Seven years of prosperous memes from Pharaoh's dreams is the page. Please, please, please go vote for us. And here's a quick reminder that you can follow us on Twitter at reformed brohood. And, you know, sometimes you actually do a, a fair amount of posting there, which I love. So we're, we try to connect with people very Twitter as, t- via Twitter as well. I just got like a, a totally British accent there for some reason. <laughs> it's like when you say the word car and you suddenly turn into a Bostonian for some reason. <laughs> do you do that on purpose or did that just develop? Uh, no. It, see here, so here's the thing, like real quick, like when I come back to New England and I get excited and speak very quickly, it tends to come out more. But there are certain words that have the, that just end in the A-R. That yeah. tend, ooh. Even the word A-R, R. Yeah, R. even R. A-R. A-R. Yeah. Go park the car in the Harvard Yard. Get me some clam chowder. 
it just you just sound angry when you have the Boston yeah. accent. Yeah, well, yeah, like you're Boston. in a hurry. Everybody's angry in yeah. Boston. Yeah, never mind. Actually, that's 100 yeah. percent accurate. So yeah. not 110 percent accurate because that's ridiculous. You can only have a full accuracy. Also, speaking um, of being angry, since we're apparently we're just going to go for another 20 minutes, uh, the concept <laughs> of percent does not apply to the divine nature because by definition, exactly. percent means you've chopped something up into 100 pieces. And you're talking Thank about you. how many pieces you have. It's per set, per Thank 100. You. So you can't do 100% of the divine nature because it, it Thank it's you. denies divine simplicity. I I love you so deeply. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we better wrap this me, up or okay. we're going to be stuck. Yeah. So we're going to close this out. We're going to get to like uh, one minute, one hour, uh, 50 minutes. But in terms of percentage, I want to ask you a question and there's no right or wrong answer to this. I'm just curious for your perception because this has been a long held debate in like my circle of friends and, and various acquaintances whom I've like absolutely like grabbed onto and said like you have to answer this question. So in terms of percentages, if a car is going zero miles per hour and then I, I don't know, like another car is going any, any miles per hour, it doesn't matter that the numbers aren't particular. Let's say 60 miles per hour. Is the car going in terms of percentage turns in your opinion, infinitely faster or like undefined? Um, I think if you were using a calculator, it would be undefined, but in yes, terms of conceptually, exactly it's yes. infinite. The quantity Ooh. faster is infinitely greater than the speed that the, the non moving car is moving. All right. Well, this has been a great podcast. <laughs> Welcome to episode 130. No, it's kidding. <laughs> we'll stop. We'll stop. I swear. Uh, this is this has been great. Basically, we have just one more episode left in our whole series on the atonement. So um, we hope that you're again sharing this with others, having kind of some conversations about the atonement. Because we've, I think, I, I hopefully I can speak for you. This has just been a wonderful time of trying to understand what it means that Jesus has reconciled us and what work He's done on the cross, and also who He is as being truly man and truly God. So I hope that you're sharing this and we've just got one more left. So until next time, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Uh